Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Help TVO create a better world through the power of learning. Visit TVO.org and make a tax-deductible donation today. With the Ontario Legislature set to resume sitting next week, we thought we'd focus on two issues tonight that have bedeviled the current provincial government for quite a long time and discuss whether they finally got a handle on those issues. We're going to talk Greenbelt and Peel Region, two issues which Premier Doug Ford has famously taken firm stands on, then thought better of it and retreated. So let's discuss this with Michael Tobe, columnist for several publications, including the National Post, Troy Media, and Looney Politics. He was a speechwriter in Stephen Harper's PMO. Amanda Galbraith is here, principal at Navigator and a regular contributor on News Talk 1010 Radio. Among other roles, she was head of communications for former Toronto Mayor John Tory. Kim Wright is principal with the cleverly named Wright Strategies. She's a former NDP advisor. And Martin Redcon is here, Queen's Park columnist for the Toronto Star, and we're delighted to welcome the Kansas City Chiefs of Provincial Panelists here today for a discussion about these things. And in the interest of full disclosure, as I often have to do when we discuss these matters, I just want to put on the record that my brother, Jeff, is a home builder in southern Ontario. And since we're going to talk about the green belt, we put that out there in the interest of full disclosure. Sheldon, why don't you put this graphic up and we'll just get a little bit of the background to our first subject, which is the green belt here. Building in the green belt or not is something the Ford government has considered. Let's go back to April of 2018, uh, when then-candidate Ford was caught on video pledging to open the Greenbelt to development. The following month, he said, the people have spoken and we won't touch the Greenbelt. But then in 2023, Greenbelt development was back on. And then in September of 2023, Ford apologized for breaking his promise. He pledged no more development in the Greenbelt and, of course, in the process, lost two cabinet ministers to resignation. So let's start on this. Amanda, to you first. Is this story over? I don't think it's over because we know there's an ongoing investigation, so that continues. But I think as far as what the public is paying attention to on the Greenbelt ups and downs, I think most people have moved on to affordability and those sorts of issues. So I think the Premier's continued ability, like Teflon-like ability, to take a hit, have it sort of, you know, fade away a little bit, apologize and pivot, um, remains unabated this long into his mandate, which is pretty remarkable for a politician. More on that subject to come. Kim, how about it? Is this story over? It's not over because the, fundamentally the biggest challenge is, and I, I, I hate to say the Premier was right, but we still have 1.5 million new units of housing to build across the province of Ontario. I would actually argue it's probably closer to 2 plus million units, and it's not getting any better. There's a reason, Steve, that we have tent cities in municipalities across this province that may, may or may not have had a hidden homelessness problem, but now it's front and center and municipalities are having to deal with it. They need to start building housing. They need to start approving housing. And all this, has, all this back and forth on Greenbelt has done is given in a, more an emboldened NIMBY movement uh, that municipalities aren't, uh, aren't living up to. And frankly, the premier, I would have expected him to be more bold on how do we actually get these things built? And that's gonna be a challenge for his caucus going forward. Michael, is the story over? 
Largely. I mean, I always believe Harold Wilson, even though I don't like to naturally quote a labor prime minister, who said, to paraphrase, a week in politics is a long time. So most people, like Amanda said, have moved on. So I do agree with that. Uh, the key, though, is messaging. And that is always the key that many of us in this panel have actually learned, been part of, or in many cases, given to others. And we understand that messaging is important. So naturally, even though the, what you showed on the graphic is a five-year gap, as to the way Doug Ford, then, you know, Premier of Ontario looked at it then and the way he looked in 2023, the key is that it will be brought up from time to time. So while certainly Doug Ford and the Ontario PCs have moved away from this issue and are looking at other matters which are pressing right now, the point is that the opposition, obviously the Liberals, the NDP, the Greens and others, have to actually continue to focus on it, to be fair. But from a, from a Conservative perspective, We've moved on. It was a mistake. It was badly handled. We'll talk about certain aspects of it. It could have been done a lot better, not in terms of development of the Green Belt, which actually I think is actually logical. It was the way it was presented. It was the fact that they didn't look at polls, which directly said most Ontarians did not want it. And they proceeded through in such a fashion that the image or the visage that actually was created from it looked awful at the end. And that's the big problem. Does the fact, Martin, that there are still a couple of outstanding investigations to report back does that fact ensure that this story is not over? Well, absolutely. Whenever you say a police investigation, people perk up. Look, I'm not part of the messaging panel. I'm a journalist, and I deal with messaging. But the message five, six years ago in 2018 was that the green belt will not be touched ever, ever, ever. And then the message changed back and forth, flip, flop, flip, flip. And... I think the challenge is that, one, it'll come back when the police investigation reports. The opposition will raise it again. Absolutely, it has abated for now. I think the bigger challenge beyond messaging is that Doug Ford, you may believe that Doug Ford did this to enrich his cronies. We'll see. But at the other end of this, he really did this because he needed, he felt he needed desperately a fix for the housing shortage that Kim talks about. But he wanted a quick fix, a quick fix, quick and dirty. And that's what backfired. And I, even if it had gone ahead, I don't believe for a moment that getting some of those camera-ready, uh, not camera-ready, but those, those, those areas of the green belt that are, that are more serviced would actually deliver the problem. I don't believe that for a moment. It's a much more intrinsic and, and deep-rooted challenge to give us those 1.5 million units. What's your sense, Kim, about whether or not the Premier's prime motivation on this was getting homes built or satisfying people who had given money to his party? Oh, those are those are very different things, and and both things can be true at the same time. I, I think one of the bigger challenges, and where this becomes a scandal that continues to the the gift that keeps on giving for the opposition parties, is you had things like his former principal secretary going off to Vegas for massages, and you know deals being or may have been done at that point. Those just look shady to people. And, and that continues to give fodder to Marit Stiles and the New Democrats. And every time that there's a new investigation, this becomes, what is it about the people around the premier that are, you know, have, have these conversations, these deals? There is no question that we need housing. What is become questionable is how do we do it? How do we do it fast? And who's responsible for it? And honestly, uh, you know, many people will see my NIMBY tears mugs. Everybody that sits there and says, well, I don't want this type of housing or this high of housing, but I really don't like that there's you know, homeless people living on our street. 
Those two things have to get solved if we're going to tackle the affordability problem. Kim's right that two things can be, two, two different things can be true at the same time. Mm-hmm. But it does, well, I shouldn't say it, I should ask you. Do you think it, <laughs> do you think it looks kind of icky when, when you read in the newspaper, for example, in Martin's paper, that developers stood to gain $8 billion worth of revenues from this, profits from this, uh, and many of them just happen to have given money to the Conservative Party? You could argue, I mean, the optics are not ideal, I think we'd all admit. We don't know if that number is true, by the way. That's what the, the Auditor General's put out. And right. with respect, like, we don't know how she calculated that. So I would just, I call the question that number. Um, second, I think parties donate, like a lot of these people donate to all the political parties. They donate to the Liberal government in the past. They'll probably donate to the next Liberal government. I'm sure Bonnie Crombie has a ton of donations on her, on her record issue, which is fine. So I think... Part of it is it's just how the system runs. People donate to political parties. They should. That's a legal thing that they're allowed to do. They also have run businesses where they develop land and they build houses. And if we want mm-hmm. housing to get built, people have to make money doing it. Yeah. So, yeah, we can criticize the optics of it, but either you want to build a house or you want to sit around and talk about it. And candidly, I want to build housing. Okay, but optics, I mean, we all remember a $16 glass of orange juice, right? Optics mm-hmm. matter a lot. Are the optics in this case... Well, where would you put them on a scale from 1 to 10 for the Conservative well, I mean, government? Certainly Bev Oda remembers the orange juice, but yes, not, yeah. not to attack her. But um, the optics, look, I mean, optics obviously are everything in politics. They're everything in life in general. It's not great. I don't necessarily go as far as Martin to say that this is an issue where he was awarding cronies. My, one of my worlds is mortgages and investments, and I can tell you that developers will glad hand anybody that they want <laughs> to get what they need. And we saw pictures actually not long after the, the first episode happened, we saw a picture of someone who actually was shaking hands with conservatives, with liberals and others, and he was in development. So it's not unusual to see that. I'm not saying it's good, I'm not saying it looks good, and obviously to the average Ontarian, whether they know a lot about politics, whether they care for Doug Ford and the, and the Ontario PCs, or whether they're a cheerleader, they don't like seeing it. So the optics don't look good, but there are always ways to couch language to shift things aside and actually move it in a different direction. The key for Doug Ford, and what he's always been very good at, is when he makes a mistake, after a little bit, like everybody, because they obviously have their, their ego, their guts, and they don't want to say that they were wrong, he apologizes. We've attacked politicians in the past for not apologizing. He apologized. He got to it. Sure, a number of other people were rolled over. Todd Smith, you know, unfortunately, got caught in it, a chief of staff, a staffer. Not Todd got, Smith. Oh, not Todd Smith. Um, Steve, Steve Clark. Clark. Steve Clark, pardon me. Sorry, Todd. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it, you're right, Steve Clark, someone else, and a chief of staff for another uh, individual, they got hit by it. So the proverbial bus caught them, but at the same time, I think once they apologize and move forward and look at other issues, that's to their benefit. Don't M- focus on it. MRC. Well, with the greatest of respect to my colleague Amanda, <laughs> I have been very critical of the Auditor General over the years. Yeah. This time, I don't think she was wrong. She did the same math on the eight-plus billion-dollar calculation that applied to the gas plants. Remember the billion-dollar boondoggle? She just looked at the future capture of profits, and and it was ca- it was it was calculated not by her but by AMPAC, the property uh, evaluation people that we all love. So, the problem was that it was a fire sale in essence, because there was this enormous capture, this enormous delta that developers were able to reap. That's what drove people crazy in addition to the cronyism. Uh, I think Dalton McGinty, a former premier, once said that it's never too late to do the right thing. Sometimes it is too late. It was for him, right? Because the gas plants, despite him doing it, just 
in the middle of an election campaign did come back, one, two, three election campaigns to hurt the Liberals. So we'll see. We can't predict these things in politics, especially in Ontario politics, which is so unreadable. But I do think that the, the, that the that Ford's Tories did take their time apologizing. Bless him for changing his mind ultimately. But Steve Clark, his minister, not Todd Smith, hung in until the bitter end. This is a minister who had called throughout his career in opposition for liberal cabinet ministers to resign and refused to resign until Labor Day when he finally saw the light. So uh, We should point that out, Amanda. There's been plenty of collateral damage mm-hmm. in this story. Now, the premier may have saved his government. He may have saved his reputation. He may, I mean, all of that is yet to be determined. But Steve Clark really got hurt by this. And Khalid Rashid really got hurt by this. Another minister from Mississauga who had to fall on his sword. And two political staffers also Michael's right, got thrown under the bus on this one. How does all that, how do, how do you, I mean, where in the equation does all of that come in? I think, I think Steve Clark in particular, we all agree, was a big political loss for the premier. He was very well liked. He was quite, you know, in spite of, I think, this issue specifically, was viewed as a very competent minister. Um, so, yeah, it's unfortunate whenever you see political staff candidly, you know, get hurt. It's unfortunate when you lose ministers. I think... Broadly, the government, in spite of all of this, and I would say most politicians couldn't weather that, right? Losing two cabinet ministers, losing a bunch of staff, having a series of police investigations, some of which are ongoing. Like, that's kind of wild to think that we're all saying, yeah, other than the police investigation, people have broadly moved on. But they've managed to do so. So I do think, you know, the other shoe could still drop. That was obviously a very challenging time for the government. We saw that in the polling numbers. But they have managed to move forward because I do believe the desire for Ontarians right now to get housing built in this province is real. And I think if they push that forward, my guess is the government will pivot in the next couple of months to probably trying to push a positive message around that, as they should, right? Because that's their job. Their job is not to look backwards in the mirror and say, like, oh, we screwed up really badly. It's how can we solve the housing crisis Kim talks so eloquently about. Well, okay, let me give you the last word on this. We, we all sort of hang out in some similar circles, but we also have our own independent circles that we hang out in. And I don't mind saying here, in some of the circles I hang out in, people aren't talking about this as much as they used to. They just aren't. So in your circles, has the public turned the page on this story? They largely have, except for they can't buy a house. Their kids are still living in their in their in their house. They're, so those kids can't go but, out. But Greenbelt as so, scandal. So Greenbelt as scandal is a pro, uh, 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 until something else comes out. Also say that if we really are interested in protecting, creating a conservation area, frankly, the provincial government could have just bought the land and put it into a trust, as opposed to creating this inevitable situation. And, you know, if you go back to the original development of the Greenbelt, some of that land was actually just for political convenience tossed into there. It wasn't this well-thought-out creation of, of, of thought and study. It was a politics decision, rightly or wrongly. Then when you talk about the Auditor General having some number that is created some of those parcels of land should have been developed. They had been developed right up against it across the street. I'm not saying it's a perfect scenario, but if you really were serious about uh, protecting this green belt, then the province should actually make those make those folks whole that they bought it from, farmers in particular that they bought it from, that will go out and say, this is no longer developable from a from a from a farming community standpoint. Some of those parcels of land just aren't good farmland anymore. So how do we do that? And that is actually the bigger challenge. And I know I I ask more of politicians 
writ large. But maybe we need to start looking at these things from beyond the crass politics, but what is actually good for it. And that becomes the bigger challenge of governing, not just politicking. I should ask one more question about this, Michael. I'll put it to you. And that sure. is that it, it, <laughs> Just don't ask me about Steve Clark. <laughs> no, we'll leave him alone for exactly. now. There did seem to be a kind of a back of the envelope. We're just sort of I know. freelancing and figuring this out as we go along. Yeah. No particular process, no particular oversight, no mm-hmm. particular fairness mm-hmm. about the way it all worked out. I mean, is that the way government's supposed to work? No, I mean, but that's the obvious answer. Uh, unfortunately, lots of things happen behind the scenes. Many of us have seen it. It's not nice. It's not pretty, but it does occur. But no, in theory, it's not supposed to happen that way. The problem is it was the it was basically the way it was presented. It looked like people were doing things behind the scenes even if they weren't. The contracts were not put up to tender. Kim's suggestions were not considered where you could have made into public land or given some stuff possibly to farmers and others and let it develop that way. There are naturally ways you can create hybrids, you know, where you have obviously a lot of residential stuff, buildings otherwise, but you have green space. You could have balanced it out. That's why I've never felt that the green belt is something that is hands-off completely. There are ways to do it. The problem is the way it looked here, it looked like they ran in willy-nilly, that they just basically awarded a whole bunch of money to other people, and it all fell apart in the seams. Even if that's not the case, and I don't believe it was, that's the image some people thought about it, and that's the image that some people are going to remember come the next election. But generally speaking, most of us have moved away from it because there are other issues. Okay. Speaking of moving away, let's move away from the green belt and talk divorce. And by that, I just mean who? the dissolution—not <laughs> a who, but a what—the dissolution of Peel Region. And uh, Sheldon, if you would, let's bring up this next graphic here. We all remember back in May of 2023. Doug Ford, Premier Doug Ford, pledging to introduce the so-called Hazel McCallion Act, which would have allowed Mississauga to leave Peel Region, uh, of which it has been a significant constituent part for going on 50 years. But then several months later, in December of 2023, Doug Ford backtracked on the Peel dissolution plan, and Peel stays as is for the moment. Okay, let's go in inverse order this time. Martin, he's made two different decisions here. Which was the right decision? Hmm. Oh, that's a trick question. I, I think the pattern is that they were, they were both flip-flops. I think they were both poorly thought through. So I'm not sure what the absolutely right decision is. I think the politics is what was driving the decisions on this one as, as, as with the Greenbelt. If you asked Hazel McCallion, it was an obvious decision. There was an imbalance for taxpayers, etc. If you asked Bonnie Cromie, the former, the then mayor, now liberal leader, again, Patrick Brown, mayor of Mississauga, Mayor Brampton. Uh, uh, thank you. Not Steve <laughs> Clark. Mayor, Patrick Brown, mayor of Brampton. I'm never going to this down. <laughs> and, and so, uh, and if you ask the mayor of Caledon, she supported this mm-hmm. back at the beginning and then changed her mind. She's now opposed to it. So, so sometimes there isn't an obvious decision and, and to govern is to choose. I don't pretend to be an expert, so I'm not going to choose, but I'm going to analyze what or, or argue what I think was not the right choice, which was to do this for political reasons and to take the path of least resistance. I guess Doug Ford finally had to acquiesce to Hazel McCallion, deathbed promise to her, went ahead and did it, thought that Bonnie Crombie, or perhaps hoped that Bonnie Crombie would remain as mayor of Mississauga once he gave her this gift. And then when she ran to be liberal leader and potentially will harvest all those Mississauga seats, now there's no upside for Doug Ford anymore. There's losing those seats anyway, and there's the downside of having Brampton mad as heck at him. Mm. And so I think that is the where I land on this, is it's, you have three 
former and present provincial party leaders, right? Patrick Brown, former conservative leader, Doug Ford, the current, don't like each other much. Doug Ford and Bonnie Crombie don't like each other much. All that triangulation, all that bad blood, and a divorce. Amanda, I, uh, take us back. Take us back to the deathbed promise <laughs> that Doug Ford made to Hazel McCallion that, yes, Hazel, as I sit here holding your hand, as you are about to expire, I give you my word, Mississauga will be allowed to leave Peel, and then going back on that word. How bad does that look? I mean, a deathbed promise is quite something, right? From a, we, we'd all put our, we've all been probably with a loved one as they're passing. You make these commitments, and uh, then politically you have to, you choose to reverse it. So I think that is, anyway, to me that's, that would be just personally like a lot to go through. I can't, knowing the premier, I can't imagine it was an easy thing for him to do. Like we can all talk about the cross politics of it, but I think he genuinely really liked Hazel McCallion. I think they were friends. Mm -hmm. And I think breaking a deathbed promise to a friend that was like, one of the most meaningful things to her in her entire political career was probably not a small thing that he thought through and did. Um, but they did face uh, like a considerable campaign, candidly, mounted by Mayor Patrick Brown about the tax implication, the cost implications for there. So you can make, I think that what we're talking about today is you can make promises or commitments or statements, and then when faced with facts, either publicly or privately, and maybe he knew these facts when he made that promise to her. I don't know that. Um, but he, they changed their mind. And I don't think that was a small decision for him would be my guess. For sure. You say facts. I want to go to you on that next because there is one study that suggests that if Mississauga were to leave Peel, that the tax implications for the property taxpayers of Peel would go through the roof. Substantial. Now, when Bonnie Crombie was the mayor of Mississauga, she had a different study, a competing study, which said, actually, this will all be fine. So if you're a person trying to make a decision about this, I'm giving the premier a little bit of an out here. If you're a person trying to make a decision about this, you've got two competing studies, as is often the case in public life. What do you do? Well, there's a couple of parts to this, which is fascinating. If you go back to it, just after the 2018 election, the premier actually started doing all of these divorces, amalgamations, reamalgamations, reimagining with a number of municipalities. And in fact, some of those got restarted. You know, I look at uh, Niagara, Halton, uh, various communities across the province. So there is there is somewhere in, in some drawer, somewhere in a locked safe that would rival Al Capone is an old, is that 2018, 2019 report on what to do with all of these municipalities. What will it cost? What will it cost politically? Never to be seen from again, this, this, uh, this document. So now we're back at it. And what we've seen in, in Peel is, oh, wait, it's not as clean as you get the water, waste, water treatments facility, we'll take police, you get social services, we'll take this. It's not a, you know, like we used to dole out our hockey cards back in the day, the not, got it, got it, need it, got it. This is substantial tax dollars. This is substantial renovations. This is a substantial amount of people who will be impacted. And for a premier who is, by all accounts, by every measure, a populist, mm -hmm. this was no longer a popular, easy decision. It wasn't just a, yep, Hazel was right. This is, this is a lot more complicated when you start to look at the personalities and politics. And you then look at places like Brampton, which has been a bellwether from the last couple of campaigns. You know, the Conservatives have it all now. The New Democrats had it before. And when we start looking at the crass politics of who forms a government and how does one form a government, 
it's a little more complicated than a deathbed promise. Michael, pick up mm. on that, because that's a key <clears throat> thing here. The conservatives mm -hmm. have all the seats in yep. Mississauga and Brampton, well, except for the one guy who's uh, yes, now dropped right. out of cabinet and yep. sits as an independent. Right. But, but basically, talk to us about how the politics and, and hanging on to all of those seats is underlying, I guess, all of what's going on here. Well, sure. I mean, you, you basically go to those who brung you to the dance. If you owe certain places, you're obviously going to look at them more fondly. For example, federally, when Toronto never elected conservatives and we had conservative governments, or very few at best, we didn't naturally go there and look towards them for ideas and answers. We looked towards, say, parts of the 905, the 519, the 613 that actually gave us members, created our caucus, and then we could build from there. Doesn't mean you completely ignore Toronto, but you do it differently. The same thing happens here. Brampton and Mississauga is primarily PC territory. You have a lot of ethnic communities and minority communities that have come in who are at least, if nothing else, resonating with the message. They like what they hear. They're content for now. Two straight majority governments. And it doesn't matter what the voter tally was. Everyone keeps using that. It's two majority governments. That's how you have to look at it. So that means you're content with what you currently have. But if things change, then naturally the game changes as well, mm. which means that at some point you may actually have to look at Brampton, Mississauga, and decide for yourself, do I have to give up on one? Do I coordinate with another? Do I build them together? Or do I move or, or look elsewhere? And that's really key to it. So yeah, politics plays an enormous role in this, whether people like it or not, and it's always going to. So that is part of a key of strategy. You have to go where your base is, and if your base is there, then that's where you stand. But the base is the whole region. Of I mean, course. That's, that's what's and the tricky base about is, it. Yes, it is the whole region, as of right now. Yes. Except, except that Bonnie Crombie has a head start in Mississauga. <laughs> Let's not forget, though, that, that we talk a lot about taxes, but potentially one of the big decision points for a populist premier is that it now looks like, or perhaps almost looks like, there's going to be job losses in this, mm -hmm. in this divorce if it had gone ahead. And the timing, the timeline would have been just perhaps ahead of the election. And that's the kind of mess that that government really doesn't like. You mentioned Parm Gill, who's dropped out. I wanted to just remind us that there are now four cabinet ministers who, have, who are gone from, uh, from, the, from the Ford cabinet. He left to run federally. He left to run mm -hmm. federally. We talked about Steve Clark, yep. Ali Rashid, and of course, Monty McNaughton right. took mm -hmm. his leave. Mm -hmm. uh, on his own initiative. So that's four ministers down in the midst of all of this tumult, all these zigzags. Well, okay, we got about uh, six minutes left here, and uh, let's get into one last big issue, which is, and you touched on it earlier, so let me come back to you full circle on this. Doug Ford does seem to have an amazing superpower, which mm -hmm. is to say he can go out there and step in three feet of manure <laughs> and get it all over him and then come out before the cameras and really emote, apologize, and his polling numbers go right back up. Mm -hmm. As they used to say on television in the 50s and 60s, explain, Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> I won't hit you over the head with a rolling pin after <laughs> I do you. it. Um, it. It is remarkable, and I think it is actually his superpower, and it is rare, because he seems to be able to act as almost a spectator on his government sometimes. It's like, hey, Premier, what do you think about your government wasting... Oh, that sounds awful. I can't believe I'm going to get to the bottom of it. It's like, no, man, you're in charge. Like, how, how can you possibly? But he has, I think, been able to consistently kind of paint himself as an outsider. I'm not part of this machine. I think the longer he goes in government, I think the less that ability um, remains. But, yeah, he does have a Teflon-like ability to stand back and say, you know what? That was the wrong thing to do. I'm super sorry. Like, aw shucks, folks. Let's move along. Mm -hmm. And he's kept that. Uh, there are, I've actually never seen 
a politician be able to do it as effectively as he has? Or as many times. Or as many times. Mm-hmm. But I also do think that in politics, and particularly all of us as kind of almost like sports fanatics watching the, the thrust and, and parry of this, um, we really obsess over flip-flopping or changing your mind. I think most people in the country, most voters are accept that that's part of life. And if you have facts in front of you that negate, like that maintain that, then you can. So I think people care less about flip-flops than all of us do, which is also why he's able to do it. How infuriated are new Democrats at being, (laughs) once again, watching the premier do this over and over and over, seemingly successfully? Look, there's a couple of parts to this. You expect the premier to do this at some point. You're just like, okay, this is, you know, the usual the usual thing. What I've actually been really quite encouraged by has been watching the New Democrats, in particular, Mart Styles, being out there talking about the closures at in Minden and the in the emergency room. Going, she just did a Northern Ontario tour, going into the mines, talking to people on the ground. What's happening? She is also promoting really interesting women-led businesses. There's a a coverall manufacturer in Northern Ontario that makes it specifically for women. And, you know, again, women in trade, something Minister McNaughton was quite good at talking about, but the rest of this government, not so much. So it gives you, if you're, if you're an opposition leader and the leader of the opposition, you're going to go out and say, he is, here is what they are doing. They are not going to fulfill any of these promises and these aw shucks. We're not getting the housing built. We're not getting the emergency departments up and operational. You're still waiting months and months and months, no matter how much gobsmacking amounts of money are in the Ministry of Health, you're still not getting your hip replaced nearly as fast as you should be. Those are the things that if you're an opposition leader two years out from, from, uh, from the next election, you're building up that database. You're finding those candidates. Okay, you're finding I those issues. Make sure we get the other guys in before we run out of time here. <laughs> Tell me, are, are you concerned, as a, as a conservative supporter, mm-hmm. are you concerned that the kind of aw shucks approach Doug, Doug Ford takes will ultimately have a shelf life? No. He's a master at it. I agree with Amanda. Amanda and I come from the same playbook, and it's not ours. This is something completely different. And the real key is, very quickly, it's for nation, the ideology that he basically follows, or the philosophy that he follows. There's no current strand of it. I've written about it. It's quite interesting. It's a mixture of small-c conservative values or sensibilities. That's really what it is. He's not a hardcore small-c conservative like I am, like Amanda is, like others are, but he's got those sensibilities, so we identify with him. He's a populist. We've talked about this. He uses populism brilliantly. The aw shucks. Listen to me now, folks. All these lines, these actually work extremely well and resonate really well. Sure, doesn't re- in Tony Toronto, it doesn't necessarily fit. The rest of the province, it works wonders. And the other key is retail politics. He was a master of it. Doug Ford and his late brother, Rob Ford, the former mayor of Toronto, were masters at this, better than anyone I've ever seen. And we've seen other politicians use variations of it. U.S. President Donald Trump, the former U.S. president, used it for some, to some extent. Former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson used it to some extent. Former Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison used it lightly. The key there, those three are out of politics as of right now, although we'll see what happens with Trump. The only one who's left is Ford, and he's really the king of it. Not that anyone followed it, but basically in many ways, they built the blueprint for it. Last minute and a half to you. Well, it works until it doesn't. I'm going to dissent respectfully, again, from everyone on the panel and say that, yeah, he has worked wonders with the apologias but, and, and, and the acknowledgement that he was wrong. But the 
the, the one constant in all of those years, starting with COVID, when he started the rollbacks, or even before that, is that he had weak opposition leaders, right? So there was no alternative to Doug Ford. That's really what happened in the last election. And we don't know what will happen in the next election. We don't know whether Marit Stiles and the NDP will work wonders or whether Bonnie Crombie and the Liberals will gain traction. They already have. And Marit Stiles and the NDP, despite the, a, new, a new look, have not. And if you look at the polling, it, you know, Doug Ford was, went down to 34%, I think, during the Greenbelt mess. He's, he went right back up to 42% yeah. in the aftermath in October. Right. He's at 38 now. But the NDP has been flatlining throughout. And the Liberals have been going up and down, leaderless and with a leader, along the way. But what's most interesting in the polling, and this will not come as a surprise to you, Mr. Pakin, is that the, the, when you look at the approval ratings for the leaders, they're almost tied, except for a lot of negativity for Doug Ford. But the one constant, all four leaders, all three and a half, including the, the Green leader, Mike Schreiner, are tied, dead tied on don't know. Mm. Can you believe that? So 23% for each of them to 25% say don't know. How can 25% of Ontarians not have an opinion on Doug Ford. That doesn't make sense. The point is, we don't know what's going to happen. It also points election. to why campaigns matter so much. Indeed. Michael yeah. Tobe, Kim Wright, Amanda Galbraith, Martin Redcon. Great of all of you to join us here at TVO tonight. Thanks so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is made possible through generous philanthropic contributions from viewers like you. Thank you for supporting TVO's journalism.